My brother James said we'll be in Hebrews chapter 1 again. I would admit to you that this will not be your typical text for an Easter sermon, but I will also submit to you that um, if any preaching is done according to the Scripture, it will certainly be an Easter topic. So keep that in mind as we consider this particular verse. As we're studying through Hebrews chapter 1, we're at verse 9. I want to read it and then we'll go before the Lord in prayer. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Let's go to the Lord. Father, as we assemble this building today, God, we offer up our praise and our worship, and we ask that by the power of your Spirit, Lord, that you would uh, make it truly holy, that you would receive it, or that we would also not consider this building to be the church, but that we would consider the people who belong to you to be truly the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the church whom he has bought with his shed blood upon Calvary's cross. Many churches today, God will meet and say that they worship. They will meet and read some texts from your holy scriptures. But the truth is that many are on a broad road, a broad path to destruction. Because of the absence of your spirit, your truth may not be discerned. And God, we pray this morning that by the power of that spirit that lives in us, the spirit that you have given as a seal, we pray that we would understand the truths of Jesus Christ and him crucified this morning, Lord, and that we would see it as glorious as possible for a human being saved by the blood of the Lamb to see it. God, we pray that as we reflect upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we come before you, Lord, as we also will observe the institution of communion today, we pray that we come before you, Lord, and ask for forgiveness of our sins, and that you would be pleased to forgive them, Lord, and remind us of the second coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and that we meet here today. Amen. So we began some time ago with Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, of course, the first verse, seeing that God would speak through the last and final and greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, his son. And the penman of the Hebrew makes it known that his wish is to explain the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ, the fullness of His divine nature, as men so oftentimes want to deny the divine nature of Christ and look only upon His humanity. And then he goes on to describe with verse 5 how Jesus Christ is to be exalted above all names, above all that is created, because He is not a created being, rather He is an eternal being, Namely, God in the second person of the Trinity. And then we see how much 
more important, how much more powerful, how much more magnificent is he than angels. And then we see that he is seated on the right hand of God the Father forever and that he has this holy scepter. And it's a scepter that represents his dominion and power over his kingdom. Also, it represents the love that he has extended to those who believe in him. And then we get to the verse this morning, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. As we noted last time that we gathered for a Sunday morning Sabbath, that this is a continuation of Psalm chapter 45, whereas in the previous weeks we have dis, uh, discovered and focused at the context of verse 6 to verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 1 is very similar and they're, they're very well meshed together. They accompany one another and complement one another. And then this week we'll see in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9 uh, that Psalm 45 verse 7 corresponds as well with it. We know that Jesus spake in John chapter 5 that he was the central theme, the central focus, and it should be to all of Scripture, that no Scripture is written lest it be about him. No Scripture should be taken apart from Jesus Christ and its reference to his sacrificial saving work on Calvary's cross. And that is why many people will gather today on Resurrection or Easter Sunday because they want to glorify the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't say that we should dare not do that. But I do say that we must understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not wonderful just because He rose from the dead, but because He sacrificially stood in our place. Resurrection Sunday is wonderful because Jesus paid the price of sinners. He took upon Himself the wrath of God. If you weren't here this morning for Sunday school, I said it this way. If Jesus Christ didn't do something different in His resurrection, He would be just another Lazarus. But the fact is, He's not. Lazarus didn't pay anyone's sin debt. Lazarus was not a righteous man of His own accord. Lazarus is not an eternal man by His nature. But Jesus Christ, in fact, is all of these things. And so we see that the work on Calvary is significant in that Jesus says, it is finished. No one else, though there have been some raised from the dead, have claimed that. No one else can say, it is finished. And neither one can say it based upon their own work, but Jesus Christ can. Psalm 45 is a perfect example of such things. We briefly discussed last week of the limited application of this passage to mere man, namely Solomon. Let's turn there. We want to look mainly at verses 6 and 7. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. This is the quote that we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. Now, some would take this and apply it to Solomon, but as we saw last week, it could not apply fully to a man who is only of human nature. 
It must apply to one who is divine in nature. Because it is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And now we see the revelation of such as it's referenced again in Hebrews chapter 1. The Son of God, and yes, of course, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, is the topic. We spoke of the reference from God to the eternal Son in His throne. This is a speech, uh, a pattern that we see here that we don't see throughout the whole Bible. This is an intimate conversation between God the Father and God the Son. This conversation that is happening at the point of the ascension of Christ after He's been dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended is referenced in Psalm before Christ had ever taken on human flesh. Certainly this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Certainly, these are the words spoken in eternity past from God the Father to God the Son. And they are continued here in Hebrews chapter 1 as this is the culmination of what was said in Hebrews, uh, excuse me, in Psalm chapter 45. It begins with, you have loved righteousness. As we look over the Hebrews, especially this first chapter, it's just so rich, the text. That we can take just a word or two words at a time and see how marvelous is Jesus Christ. You have loved righteousness. It seems in this particular text to be past tense, but uh, other translations may say that this is present tense love. And certainly I would submit to you that it must be present tense love because God is eternal. If it was true in the, in, in the Psalms and then it's true also in the Hebrews, we know that it's true today because God continues to preserve His people. He continues to show grace and mercy. He continues to love righteousness. Therefore, it must be both present and past tense and future tense. You have loved. Some translations, you love. It's even better that way. You love. Eternally loving His creation. Even before it is set in motion, the creation of the world and all of the creatures, He has loved for He would go to the cross. And it says that He's loved righteousness. Who else has loved righteousness? Truly, completely, wholly, always loved righteousness. None of us can claim that. No one can claim it. Not Solomon, certainly. Not David. Not Abraham. Not Moses. Not Noah. Or any other human being that you can think of except for Jesus Christ who has completely and always without one incident of failing loved righteousness. This is how we know that this love is an enduring love. A love which is forever. This is how we know that both present and past and future tense are correct as we read this text. How can we know? The answer is that we remind ourselves that we're reading a text that is dealing directly with the living God. He is the eternal Father. And this is the eternal Son of whom we speak. And so since, according to Malachi chapter 3... He is immutable where it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. We understand that by the distinct characteristic name there, there is a reminder of His attributes. 
and that they are never compromised. He being spirit, he being infinite, he being eternal, he being wise, he being powerful, holy, just, good, and truthful, and we can continue on. All of these attributes and characteristics that only belong to God. And here the Hebrews say that they belong to Jesus Christ. This speaks of His divine nature. So if we begin with this rightful presupposition that God is unchanging in all of His persons because we cannot separate the Spirit from the Father, the Father from the Son, or the Son from the Spirit, then we understand that these attributes must belong to Him. He must also be unchanging. Then we can boldly say that He loved righteousness. He still loves righteousness and He will forever love righteousness because Jesus Christ is God. The Father says, forever you will have loved righteousness. That's the implication from the text. Forever you have loved righteousness. Speaking of the future, speaking of the present, speaking of the past. But consider this, the first portion of the phrase, you have loved. Is there any better definition of Jesus Christ? We could just stop right there with those three words, you have loved And by that, you could preach a sermon to yourself of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That is what Easter Sunday is about. That is what Resurrection Sunday is for. To remind us that Jesus Christ has loved. And Jesus Christ is loving because He tarries. He's waiting until the hour which He will return and gather up His people. But He's waiting with a purpose. He's waiting because there are those of us in this room who may not truly believe in Jesus Christ and trust in Him as Savior. There are souls still needing to be saved. There are lives on the line. There are sin debts that have yet to realize the implications of Christ on the cross. And here it is. This perfect definition of Jesus Christ. Certainly the love of Christ is the apex of the sacrifice that He's made on behalf of those who have repentant faith in Him. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. And then everything after that tells how He loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son willingly as a sacrifice for the sin of men that that only is effectual if we believe in Him. And that's not a mere profession of faith. But it's an outward walk with Christ. It's an outward working. It's a fruit-bearing relationship with Jesus Christ by which others may know that you are my disciples, as He says. It begins with the love of Christ. If pre-incarnate Christ had not loved creation, He would have left man without provision for sin. Think about that. You wouldn't be here this morning. You certainly wouldn't be dressed in your new clothes. Ken wouldn't have brought a ham. There would be a lot more devil than just the eggs today. If Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, did not love His creation. That's the truth. This provision that has been provided through the sacrificial Lamb of God. 
But that good that we see in Genesis' account that he created was cared for and tended to from the very beginning. From the very beginning, His provision has been there. His love, His grace, His mercy, His long-suffering. That as we spit and as we revile and as we blaspheme God, He withholds His wrath. Because He pours it out upon the Son of God. He pours it out on Jesus Christ. Many blessings given even in simple consideration of those things that are temporal, be it uh, food, be it a house, be it a car. Many of these things that we take for granted, they're blessings, they're truths that Jesus Christ has loved His creation and that He continues to love. That God would provide breath for man, shelter for man, herbs and meat for man, woman for man. I can say amen on that one. Amen. The love of God in Christ is present from the very beginning. And as we go further, we reconcile in our minds, the Lord our God is one, as it's written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord our God is one. Remember that as we think about this love of God. Therefore, we have no right and no authority to separate either the Father from the Son, the Son from the Spirit, or the Spirit from the Father. Therefore, just as the Father had, so had the Son made peace with men that by sacrifices they would be pardoned. As it was through faith, these things were counted as righteousness. Think about that. The provision of God was such that man could be pardoned for sin temporarily in the Old Testament if they would bring sacrifices. But God's unchanging. There must be a sacrifice for sin. This is why Easter Sunday isn't just written in the Synoptic Gospels. Resurrection Sunday isn't just about an account from Luke or the one that we read from John this morning or Matthew or Mark about Jesus Christ as He comes out of the tomb. It continues as we see it here in the Hebrews. You have loved. Furthermore, Jesus has loved so much that the Father, uh, that He loved the Father so much that He came to do the will of the Father. The love of Jesus Christ can't extend to the creation if it doesn't first start within His own being, within His own three persons. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. He came to do the will of God the Father and He came that those given to Him would too be so loved that He would give Himself as a ransom for her. That He would die upon Calvary's cross. And when we think about that, we often miss the big picture that Jesus died on the cross. We think, man, I would have hate to die upon that cross. But what one thing that we wouldn't do if we died upon the cross is we wouldn't feel any of the wrath that Jesus felt from God. We wouldn't experience that wrath upon the cross. We experienced the wrath of God in eternity in hell, but He experienced it on earth in bodily form as a human being taking upon Himself the wrath of God, being crushed and bruised. Then we see that God loves so much that Christ's payment is fully saving for eternity. And it's done so, it's made possible by grace through faith. 
Thank goodness you don't have to be at church. We'd be in big trouble if it was by any other means but by grace and through faith. And that's not to excuse anyone from not assembling because it's a blessing and it's a commandment that we assemble together. But here it is, the truth that it's fully saving because it's by grace through faith. A faith that is a measure given to men by God. The truth is that anything we deem to be loving must be compared to the greatest love of all. No other verse describes the greatest love as John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then we see Psalm 36, 7 as it declares that God's love is precious. God's love is eternal and unfailing, further solidifying the certainty of the redemption that we have in Christ. Our future is sure because of the love of the one who has died in our stead. Again, according to that John chapter 15, 13, no one else fits that model. John even tells it. The purpose of my gospel is that I write these things concerning Jesus Christ that you may believe in Him and have life in His name. Therefore, when John writes, greater love has no man than this, he's writing, greater love has no man than Jesus Christ. Greater love has no one than God. We know that. I can't love like God. You can't love like God completely and fully all the time. Therefore, he must be the greatest love. And then again, it says greater love has no man than this. So it must be speaking of a man too. It must be speaking of Jesus Christ, the God man, carrying upon himself both natures, divine and human. There's a guarantee. There's a completeness, a fulfillment of love. A love that will not fall short of its goal. The goal of love is salvation. This is why the world has such a perverted view of love. We think that if someone sins, that we should just keep our mouth shut, that we shouldn't say anything, that we should mind our business, that we should be accepting. But that's disgusting. That's a perverted view of love. Because we see that the goal of love is salvation. The goal of love is salvation. And if that's true, then we must confront sin. We must confront our own sin. But it can't be done apart from the Spirit of God. Therefore, we go to the brethren. We go to those who are yet realizing the saving faith that may be established in their hearts. We go to the unregenerate saying, Jesus Christ has died. You're in sin. If you don't repent, if you don't believe in Him, you shall suffer the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. That is love. Because apart from the gospel message in that, there is no salvation. And salvation is the goal of love. This also is the steadfast love of Psalm 86.15 and Psalm 136.26. Write those down and, and look at them. It says, even deeper is the fact that love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 8. Who here loves that way? Perfectly. In every moment. This must be speaking of Jesus Christ. Here the text bears out that love never ends. Love is eternal. It must be Christ. How can that be? John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, 7 says, God is love. Love is eternal because true love is God. Our eternal security rests not on our own merit or righteous deeds because we have none, nor can it be held up by the lips of sinful man in confession. But instead, it's made to rest upon that hope without shame, the love of God. 1 John 4, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. There's a truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. We weren't reconciled to God when we said a prayer or when we walked down to the front of the church and made a profession or were baptized. The truth of God's sovereignty and salvation is very clear. It says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. By grace through faith. There it is. While we were enemies. Submit to you this morning. Many enemies of God will meet at churches. Church buildings. To give quote unquote reverence. To Jesus Christ on resurrection Sunday. But the truth is that. Every Sunday must be Resurrection Sunday. Every day that we wake up, we must be reminded of Resurrection Sunday. And not just that a man came up from the grave, but that a perfect, righteous man who stood in our stead before God to take on His wrath, to pardon sinners, resurrected. And not only was He resurrected, but He ascended. Any Easter service that I've ever been to that didn't speak of that was just a waste of time. And I've been there. You've all probably been to one. 
if it doesn't speak of the sacrificial blood of the lamb being spilt out as an offering before God, reconciling men, being ascended into heaven and taking the right hand of the throne and coming back to judge the wicked and the dead, it's not an Easter sermon. It's not a sermon about the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Many more are the vast examples of the love of Christ, but the text does not stop with love, but it says, you have loved righteousness. You love righteousness. So many things come to mind when we consider the spiritual nature of this decree from the Father to the Son. What does this statement fully encompass? What does it mean in its totality? We have to start from the beginning. And actually to do that, Sounds counterintuitive. We have to start from before the beginning. The eternal past, so to speak. Before Christ took up human flesh, He loved righteousness. Before creation was created, Jesus loved righteousness. Well, what was the righteousness that He loved? Of course, it was not, in fact, a what righteousness, but it was a who righteousness. The righteousness that he loved, the righteousness that Christ still loves and will forever love, is the righteousness of God. The only righteous anyone or anything that has ever been truly, it must be God. Therefore, when Jesus makes the claim that he loves the Father, we know that it's true. The Father even says that you love righteousness. That must mean that because Jesus is righteous, because the Holy Spirit is righteous, because God the Father is righteous, Jesus loves all of His being. Himself and the other two persons of the Trinity. There was no other righteousness before creation besides the triune God. Okay, so Jesus loves righteousness. Righteousness is God, but even deeper, it is the very nature and character of God. His very makeup. He loves what is right. He loves who is right. He loves who is holy and perfect. Then when we see such a verse as verse 9 here in Hebrews chapter 1, we notice that He loves perfection. Jesus desires perfection. To the point that He Himself was perfect and sinless. The obedience of Jesus Christ to the Father's will is one that is defined by His love for righteousness and the joy in thereof of its execution. Jesus loved being obedient to the will of the Father because the will of the Father is even righteous. He was joyful to do whatever it cost. And I'll ask you this morning, are you joyful to do whatever it takes to follow Christ? To take up that very same cross the cross that John says was his. In exchange for a yoke whose burden is light. Christ himself said it. Now if the first expression of Christ's love was for righteousness before creation. Towards himself, towards God the Father, towards the Holy Spirit. Then that means to some extent if we place things on a timeline. Albeit it is really impossible to do such with eternal truths. 
we would see that it appears that Christ first loved himself, the Father, and the Spirit, and thus he loves his creation, for it is his and he has done nothing wrong. That's why he creates and says it's good. Afterwards, he dies for her, his creation, humanity, because of this great love that he has for her. But wait, that's it. That's the key to understanding to such a great degree how God can view sinful man. Sinful man who have saving faith in Christ. How can Christ love those same sinful man? The key is this particular verse. You have loved righteousness. The truth is that he loves only righteousness. Therefore, if this is true, then it means in order to love us, the saints of God, the church, the elect of Christ, we must be righteous. That's a wonderful thing. It says it there. You loved righteousness. The only thing that Christ has ever loved is righteousness. And if he says that he loves me, then that must mean that he has made me righteous. He's done it because he's not another Lazarus. Because his blood has power. There's power in the blood. Since we know that only God is righteous, we must have received God's righteousness. It's amazing. Yet even still more amazing, this must mean that Jesus is certainly deity. Think about that. You've loved righteousness. He loves us, so we must be righteous. But the text even tells us that we get our righteousness from Christ, so He must be God. Amen. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. There's no debating it. If He loves righteousness, and we're righteous, and we got what we have from Him, then He must be righteous. He must be God. I wish there were some Jehovah's Witnesses in here this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we may become the righteousness of God. God says it Himself. Why would we argue this? I'll tell you why. Because natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Period. Even deeper still for Jesus to love something or to love someone, this must also mean that he despises something else. That he despises someone else. It must be, by its nature, the very opposite of righteousness. It says it in the second part. And hated lawlessness. Hate wickedness. Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. We can conclude that God must hate the natural state of man, for by its definition, it's wicked and deceitful as it speaks of the heart throughout the entire scriptures. Therefore, the only thing that can be done is for this flesh to be crucified and for a new nature to be given by the regenerating spirit of holy God. That only comes from the culmination of the truths of Resurrection Sunday. 
that a righteous man died. A righteous God came to reconcile sinners to himself. Therefore, the only thing is crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, Son of David. A complete and sovereign work of Jesus, our God. Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This nature New nature is indeed one of the righteousness of of the only begotten as it is imputed to repentant man. That's the gist of Romans 9. A new nature is needed because he hates wickedness. He only loves righteousness. Therefore, what happens at regeneration? It's not a, a Baptist bath. It's not a confession where they don't come back, where they don't worship every day. The truth is that he's given a new nature and he's a new man in Christ Jesus. Where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It's not he who lives, but it's Christ who lives in him. He's taking on this same mind that is in Christ Jesus. A true disciple imputed to repentant man. That's how Jesus loves righteousness. Because he hates wickedness. And if he hates wickedness, he must do all the work on the cross to make you a Christian. To tell us that it is finished, the work of Christ on the cross. Then it says, Therefore, God, your God, Again, the supremacy of Christ, the overarching theme as God speaks to God here. Equal. Equal in power and authority and attribute. He says, and the Father has anointed you. The God Christ obeyed. The one He prayed to. He has anointed you. Our very same Heavenly Father. His anointing did not add anything to the person. For that would denote that Christ was lacking. Yet he contained two distinct natures. His anointing was and is that of spirit as it is marked as a descending dove. This was just so that man could see it. This isn't that Christ didn't have the spirit. Are you kidding me? That would be heresy. Two distinct natures. His anointing was of spirit, marked by this as a dove, anointed as Saul and David were as kings. He is anointed also as king, prophet, priest, and king, Lord of lords. But most assuredly, he is anointed as holy, sacrificial lamb. That's what today is about. The lamb with eternal purpose. Any other lamb had but a temporal purpose that it would be a sacrifice and as soon as sin came around again, they would need another lamb or another dove or another bloody sacrifice that was less than sufficient. Here is a lamb with eternal purpose who is also mediator for all of mankind. Acts 10 God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This oil, it says, with the oil of gladness above your companions. This oil of gladness was an oil of gladness. It was gladness to fulfill the will of the Father. Gladness to reconcile sinful man to God. And in doing so, bringing the fullness of joy to their service to Him. Eternal gladness. Eternal anointing. No need for any other. This is why when you turn on the television and see some pastor or preacher as he calls himself and he's talking about anointing he has no idea what he's talking about he's leading people down a road straight to hell there's one anointing it's by the spirit of God and it's eternal why would you need it again if it could be done by water do you think John the Baptist would say Jesus I need to be baptized of you and he didn't understand didn't matter where he was standing. Didn't matter what water he was in. He needed Jesus Christ. <coughs> this text, as it says, you love righteousness, you hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Tells us several things that we've seen in the past. It tells us that Jesus is anointed as prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, and that he loved righteousness to foretell men of his sacrifice to come. To tell men to be on the lookout for the Messiah. You search the scriptures and think that you have eternal life, but they testify of me. A paraphrase of what he says in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus as prophet beforehand, before the incarnation, was telling men that he would be the final sacrifice. You must look to me. If they had not, even Abraham would have no righteousness. Then priest. Jesus loved creation and loved righteousness. That he would come and establish his earthly ministry. That he would preach the Son. The only way to God the Father. Repentance. Faith in him and in him alone. Preaching the sacrifice that we meet to glorify today. And then King. Jesus loving injustice. Justice that sinful man who believe in Him can be counted just before God and His sacrifice being all sufficient and just that the wicked will receive their punishment. That's the love of Christ. So I'll submit to you this morning. This is the message of Jesus Christ. This is a resurrection Sunday. This is about Jesus Christ, the propitiation for sins, the man who willingly died in your place as human being, as God. Have you submitted to Him? Is there gladness on your part for the sacrifice that has been made on your behalf? Are you grasping a hold of Jesus Christ never to let go? Or are you still this wicked human being who has no change? Who has no desire to serve God? Because if you're in that place and you recognize it, how wonderful. 
The Spirit must be ministering to you if you know that you're wicked and that you need Jesus Christ. Here's the resurrection sermon that Jesus Christ is resurrected and ascended into heaven. The only mediator between God and man. The only sacrifice. And if you believe in Him, you too shall be resurrected. The we're cautioned to examine ourselves. We'll see that this morning before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves. See that every day is resurrection day. That every day you wake up singing, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Let's go before the Lord. Our wonderful, holy, righteous God, we come before You. Lord, we're thankful that You are God Almighty and that Your sacrifices are never-ending. Your sacrifices are eternal and they are completely sufficient. God, we come to You today pleading because of the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that You may deal to us a great measure of faith, a great measure of obedience, God that we may serve You, that we may love You, and that we may glorify and exalt the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, above all names. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.